Welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest for this episode is Melanie Tresick King. Melanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. All right, thanks for being here. I have quite the bio on you, which I shall read because I don't want to leave anything out if that's all right. So this is the part where people look awkward because they hear so, much nice, so many nice things about themselves, so just, just bear with me. <laughs> Melanie is the creator of thinkingispower.com, an online resource that provides critical thinking education to the general public. She is currently an associate professor of biology at Massasoit Community College, where she teaches a general education science course designed to equip students with critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy skills. An active speaker and consultant, Melanie loves to share her teach skills, not facts approach with other science educators and help schools and organizations meet their goals through better thinking. You are also the education director for the Mental Immunity Project and CIRSI, which stands for Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, which aim to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. I must say, you are busy. I am. It's nice. It's good? Good to be busy? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know any other way. Let, let's start with that. You are a college biology teacher. Why have you developed so many outlets for critical thinking? Because of my frustration with teaching biology to non-majors. Oh, okay. Yes. Would you care to elaborate on that? <laughs> yes. My background is ecology uh, and general biology. And when I started teaching at Massasoit, um, I became the lead instructor for the intro bio course, which is around the country, um, generally speaking, when people don't want to be scientists when they grow up, they have to take science electives to satisfy the requirements. And so um, I was teaching this course for non-science majors, and I taught it for like probably 10 years. And I, I Science literacy is so important. There's a reason that we have non-scientists take science courses, right? It's because our world is built on science and that understanding science is important for understanding reality and making decisions. But I was teaching intro bio and basically asking students to memorize all these facts. Um, a little side tangent here. The most popular non-major science textbook around the country Okay, has about 800 pages for a semester. So this course that the vast majority of people take, right, has uses a book that has about 800 pages. It's basically a light version of all we know about biology. In those 800 pages, the very first chapter has about four pages devoted to what they call process of science. And so I used it. I used, I think I used eight different books. I revamped the course every way I knew possible. I was using issues-based and I used um, problem-based learning. And um, I actually remember the moment I was teaching the cell cycle. And so stages of mitosis and using cancer as the issue. Um, cancer is um, when the cell cycle goes awry. Basically it's unstoppable cell division. And so I was using cancer to explain the stages of mitosis and the cell cycle. And I looked at my students, it was near the end of the semester, I looked out at my students and they had a mixture of like deer in the headlight look and bored and oh my God, make this go away, right? And I knew they 
look, people don't take science classes just because they want to. They had to, right? And I was trying to sell them on science, and I think I just, I was not doing a very good job. And so um, I went to the department and I said, you know, why do we teach non-science, uh, non-major science? And they said, well, you know, science literacy, great. Let's look at the courses that we teach and ask ourselves if these meet our objectives. And if they don't, let's get rid of them and maybe design something in their place. And to their credit, they got rid of that class. And it's, that's actually a really big deal um, because it's a, a lot of people don't want to give up on that old way of teaching science. Wait, can I interrupt for a quick second? Yeah. You went to the admin yep. and said the non-science, I'm sorry, science for non-science majors isn't working. Yeah. And you convinced them to scrap it? Yes. Wow. Yes. So th th I think you glossed over that part a little bit. That must have taken more than one meeting because that, it's a curriculum-based thing. I mean, I remember when I, even when I went through music school, I had to take a descriptive science and a lab science. Yes. And I think I took astronomy for descriptive and computer science for lab because they considered it a lab because you had to write programs or something. So that okay. is a standard, or it was in 1989. Yeah. So you go on. So you, yeah. that took, how did that go? Yeah, it actually went really well because they had known of the longstanding issues with that course. Um, and when I brought it to them, it wasn't, new information, but them making that decision was a really big deal. Um, and again, just because I know I have colleagues around the country that are trying to do something similar, and they run into a lot of issues with curriculum, with wanting, not generally speaking, um, not wanting to change how we teach science, even though we have ample evidence that that doesn't work. Um, they're hesitant to change what we do. So I convinced them to get rid of it, and we did. And in its place, I created a course I call Science for Life. And what it does is it focuses on skills, not facts. So instead of having my students memorize 800 pages of facts, I actually don't have them memorize anything. The entire course is focused around critical thinking skills, science literacy skills, and information literacy skills. Wait, say those three again? Yeah, so it's um, uh, critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And those are all different yet related? Yes. Okay, so. There's a lot of overlap between them, of course, um, but all three are important and do have slight differences that are all worth addressing independently and then um, um, m combined more and more as the course progresses. Okay, so let me stop you here. Um, yeah. I forgot to mention up front, this is, I haven't done this for so long in person. It's, <laughs> this is a conversation, so I may have to interrupt occasionally if I don't understand something or I want you to clarify. Yes, please. Um, so, uh, I've interviewed a lot of science teachers. I don't know how this part's gonna go down, all right. And I've asked about critical thinking. And a lot of them just fall back and say, well, I teach physics or I teach biology. So critical thinking is just, I don't understand what you mean. It's just part of what we do all the time. I see your, okay. So that's an interesting uh, epiphany you may have had. Is that the right word? Yeah. Revelation. So comment on that a little bit, because if you're talking about critical thinking, science literacy and information literacy, I can see, you know, a science teacher saying, uh. So um, at Massasoit, for example, um, because we are a union, um, if you teach a science course, it by definition under those rules is a critical thinking course. Oh, it's just defined that way? Yes. Okay. 
So, okay, now I understand why they say that. Then. Yes, <laughs> okay. and we do. We think that, of course, I mean, I'm teaching science. Of course I'm teaching science literacy, and of course I'm teaching critical thinking. Um, I say this as someone who now realizes that I was wrong, but it took me a long process to get there, that I didn't realize just how poorly I was doing when it came to that um, until I designed a course to explicitly teach that. If you asked all of those people who think they're teaching critical thinking, what is critical thinking? Right. They'll Define. all disagree, right? They won't have the same definition. If you can't clearly define it, you're not going to be able to clearly teach it as well. And I also, on the science literacy part, um, disagree with a lot of the ways that we define that. Usually, um, often, measures of science literacy are um, which is smaller, a protein or um, a water molecule? Or um, how long does it take the Earth to go around the sun? And those are important, but I don't think memorizing those facts is science literacy. So um, like going back to my students when I was teaching um, the cell cycle in cancer, today, I think if those students were touched by cancer today, did what I taught them help them at all? Would they remember it? And if they did, was it useful to them? I mean, I was teaching that class before the pandemic and we've had a novel virus and a novel vaccine. And I don't think I equipped those students to understand how the process of science works, to know, um, who is more trustworthy, how to evaluate evidence. Um, we saw science playing out in real time. And it's that process of science that I didn't teach them. And so um, today that's what I try to focus on, um, to give them the skills that they need so that as science changes, as the world changes, they have the tools that they need to be able to understand and make better decisions. So define, so uh, my, for critical thinking, as a person from the public, not a scientist, I define it as the ability to evaluate evidence before coming to a decision. Something like that. That's pretty good. So if you wrap science literacy into there, into that, uh, into that pot, what's the difference with science literacy? If it's not just basic, the sun goes around the, I'm sorry, the earth goes around the sun, you know, that's, I guess that's literacy just because it's something you know, but it's not, you don't know, you don't, it's not real knowledge, if that makes any sense. Well, yes, because if I asked you, for example, how long does it take the Earth to go around the sun, right? I can only tell you based on what someone's told me. Right. So you could say 365 days, which is what you know the vast majority of people would say. At least I hope they would say that. Um, but then if I asked, how do you know that? You know, well, you know, I someone I trust told me. Right. Right. And so that's okay. Um, but... Even that basic understanding of knowing that a lot of what you know comes from people you trust is an important revelation because that means that it's important to place your trust wisely. Now we can talk about that more, but I want to answer your question because it's about the difference between science literacy and critical thinking. Yeah. So um, science literacy then is understanding how did we know, how did we learn that the earth takes 365 days to go around the sun? How do we know what causes cancer? Cancer is a huge body of illnesses. So how do we know what causes different types of cancers? How do we, um, 
how do we test treatments for effectiveness? How do we know if certain treatments are more effective than others? That's science literacy to me. It's understanding how in that 800 page textbook, how did we learn those things? Does that make sense? It does, it does. Okay. So in the class, what is the class called again? Science for Life. Okay, so what's the, it's 15 weeks probably, take me through the first couple of weeks so, so I have an understanding of what's going on. I should have had you send me a syllabus. Uh, <laughs> I can certainly do that. Um, so wait a minute though, this is now the course that everyone has to take? A non-science major? Yeah, so it's a, uh, the course that most non-science majors take. Um, there are other options as well, but intro bio is not one of those options anymore. I see, oh okay. Yeah. All right, so now take me through just how does it start? Yeah, um, so I start day one with a personality assessment. So um, it's, it was done by Bertram Foer in the, the 50s. Um, James Randi made it popular. Uh, basically, um, I hope my students don't watch this before they, I have them in class. So what I do is... They so, probably will. <laughs> day one, um, I have a friend who is an astrologer and... Um, she knows I teach this class and it's about skepticism and evaluating evidence. Uh, so she's agreed to provide personality readings for free for everybody in class. So um, if you wanna participate in this, uh, fill this out. So it's basically, um, I, it's numerology and astrology, you know, tell me your name, birthday. I have like three questions like, uh, if your house was on fire and, and you could only take one thing, what would it be? Or if you could do anything for a living and get paid for it, what would it be? And if you could have any superpower, what would it be? So just questions to get them like primed to thinking that I'm thinking about their personality or my friend, the astrologer. Uh, the next day in class, I give them back their personality assessments and I tell them, you know, so this is um, an experiment. We wanna all independently come to our conclusions about how reliable this was. So um, please read your assessment um, and then I'm going to have you blindly vote on a scale of one to five how accurate she was. And, you know at this point the students are like oh, wow how did she get me and I'm like we, we need to be quiet you know because we're trying to. Right. So then they all vote scale of one to five. I've been doing this for years. Uh, it's about 4.3 to 4.5 out of five in terms of accuracy. Okay. Okay so now get with the person next to you and um, talk about why you thought it was accurate. Like what in the reading really spoke to you? And they talk, it's a one-page reading and sometimes it takes them 10 minutes to realize they all get the same thing and it's because they're picking out different parts of the reading that they thought were more applicable to them but of course they all got the same thing. Yeah. Okay and then I get to, I'm sorry I lied to you. Um, By the way do you read what they wrote for answers just out of curiosity? I do. You must get some surprising answers. <laughs> I do. Okay, anyway, I'd like to see those. I know that this is all, a, it's not really an experiment, but you're teaching them something, but it'd be interesting to see those answers just for the heck of it. But okay, go on. So mm -hmm. they all realize, oh my gosh, we all got the same thing. How yes. could I be so generic? Uh, yes. Well, why did you think this applied to you? Right? And so we get to talk about, you know, the Barnum effect and confirmation bias, and I primed them and appealed to authority. Um, and, and then I, you know, I, I try to make a joke out of it. Like, you know, I lied to you, and I'd like to tell you I won't do it again, but I might. So be on your toes. I don't want you to just believe me because I say something, right? I'm trying to get you to think. Um, but, I did this for free and I did it for educational purposes so that if somebody wants to claim that they're psychic in the future and charge you a bunch of money for something, the standard of evidence should be higher than something that's easily fakeable, right? So I start with that and then 
part, I, I, the, the very first module is about how we come to know things. It's, it's epistemology. And I start with witches. So um, I tell them the... Well, let me ask you one question, though. Yeah. Do you ever get someone, I mean, oh, after all these years, you must get someone that says, oh, well, my aunt is an astrologer, or my yes. aunt's a tarot card. My mom. Okay. What? Yeah. Do they drop the course, or what? No. Okay, Actually, good. I've had a few... I mean, this would be mind-blowing if your life was based around that in a way. Yeah. We have to think about that. Yes. Because you're actually, first of all, I hate to put you on the spot. These are freshmen, you're generally. You know, I'd like to say so, but they often procrastinate their science courses. Okay. So you're yeah, sophomores. <laughs> okay. Um, but they're still young. And yeah. even if you're not young, I mean, you could be whatever age, and if you get some contradicting information, it can really mess with your head. So what's the, I mean, do you ever take a moment in this day and age and have a, let's settle down and talk about this? Oh, How yeah. This, okay. Oh, all so the time. what kind of, have you, what do you get from somebody that, whose mom is an astrologer? Um, I've had a few students who were quite upset at the very beginning. In all the years I've been doing this, at several the semesters. Yes. Okay. Um, I've probably had three that I can think of that, that were a little shaken by it. Oh, okay. That's not um, so bad. And then I, I, you know, after our debrief, um, the, it, this, the class is over, so they leave. Um, sometimes um, of the three, like one of them has come back to talk to me. The other ones, I've just said in class, you know, this, this is a process. Um, I just want you to stick with me here. I also explicitly say that I did not disprove psychic powers. Right. In an exercise like that, I didn't disprove the existence of psychic powers. Um, I couldn't do that because oftentimes they're not falsifiable. But even if they are, um, we don't have good evidence for them. My whole point here isn't that I disproved it. It's just that it's easy to fake. Right. And so what I want you to understand is if we're um, the, the famous, um, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If somebody claims that they're a psychic, that's an awfully big claim. See how easy it is to fake, right? And so they're free to go on believing in psychics. We talk about ghosts, the same thing. I took you off track. You yeah. Witches. Witches. Okay, oh. so you go from astrology to witches. I do. Um, because, okay, so um, I, I start with like the, the witch trials uh, and the, like, the witchcraft hysteria of um, Europe several uh, centuries ago. Um, and we talk about, you know, um, the torture. I, <laughs> the day I put together the torture lecture on how, so the, the, the best evidence for witchcraft was confession. Oh. And how do you get someone to confess? You torture them. There are any number of imaginative ways, apparently, if I'm putting like a positive spin on this, to try and torture people. I would confess to nearly anything, right? Under these circumstances. And that's my point in telling this story, is that this- Yeah, you just have to wave it in front of me. <laughs> yeah, look what I'm gonna do to you. Yes, I'm a witch, okay? <laughs> um, just hang me now. Yes, make it stop. Right. But that was the best evidence. So they could see how strongly people believed in witchcraft. Like if somebody's um, baby got sick or if the crops died or if there was a storm, it was witches. And they really, really, really believed it. And their evidence to them was quite strong. My point in telling the story to the students is to think about what you believe strongly about and to reflect on your own thought process about how you came to know that and how you might test that. I also follow that thread, that witchcraft thread, through to the satanic panic. 
of the 80s and 90s into QAnon today because there's a lot of the same beliefs, like threads of beliefs that pop up in different places. People act on their beliefs, whether they're true or not. What I want them to do is reflect on their beliefs, ask how they know that, start to think about their evidence, start to think about how they might test it, um, proportion their confidence, um, be willing to change their mind. Do you give them a, um, a paranormal assessment test? Because what I mean by that is studies vary on this and I'm not sure how well they're done, but there's a large amount of people come out of high school and if you just said without any judgment, you know, do you think that psi energy is real or that ghosts exist or that people can read minds? Have you ever done that just to see? Because I, I, I can imagine a lot of people don't think it's unusual for you to give them an astrology test, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've had probably um, the same number of people who were upset by it be wait a minute, this, this is a science in... class and you're giving me an astrology test? But that's rare, right? That's rare. I wonder if it's the belief, it's a, if they're just think it's perfectly normal or if they don't want to question authority. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but their um, confidence on how, um, how accurate the astrologer was um, does make me think that there was some level of belief in astrology. You know, I've, um, I cover ghosts, um, Science denial, like climate change denial, evolution denial. Um, I, Do you get is, any creationists? Not very many. Oh, okay, I was going to say. Not very many. I used to teach in Nebraska. I got a lot of creationists in Nebraska. Um, I'm not sure if it's a, a time difference or a geography difference, but I get way fewer um, evolution denialists here. I have gotten them. Um, I get more climate change denialists than I would like, of course. Um, I do, um, but for example, homeopathy or Reiki. I have a lot of students who believe in that. I, I well, do a very... case study on um, Herbalife. I've okay. had several students sell Herbalife. Reiki, Herbalife, what was the other, homeopathy. I mean, we, uh, and you've had students that sell Herbalife. You're testing their existence basically or confronting how they operate in the world. I'm sorry, I'm not saying this very well. Yeah, but... no, uh, it's important. So um, one of the things I try to teach students very early on, and it's a l like concurrent with the um, witchcraft and the astrology, is um, the importance in critical thinking of separating your beliefs from your identity. Oh, okay. That's a tough It's thing. a tough one. But it's really hard to be objective about something when you're on the line. If your belief is you and somebody um, threatens that belief with evidence, then you feel personally threatened. Um, brain scans show actually the same part of the brain operating with threats is threatened when we're faced with counter evidence to a belief we strongly believe about. You know when people saying? get anxious, they, there's a physical reaction sometimes. There's a physical reaction. So Just to a thought process. Yes, but if you want to know if that belief is true or not, right, and that's important too, do you actually care if your beliefs are true? If we want to objectively evaluate a belief, we can't have a personal stake in it. It is really hard to do. Even acknowledging to yourself though, that I feel and um, emotionally triggered when um, a potential threat to that belief, um, when I've been faced with a potential threat to that belief, um, 
even knowing that that reaction exists is a pretty good sign that you may not be honest with yourself. So it's an early concept, right? I addressed at the beginning of the semester. And then, um, you know, I, I offer lots of examples where, um, of what can happen when you're refuse to change your mind because your beliefs are so attached to your identity. So I'm hoping through, like I tell a lot of stories and um, give them um, fun examples. I also, so um, I use a lot of pseudoscience in class um, because I'm trying to show students the difference between pseudoscience and science. And um, Carl Sagan, there's a great quote, um, if we teach people only the findings of science, no matter how useful or inspiring they may be, without communicating science's critical method, how can the average person possibly tell the difference between science and pseudoscience? So I actually use pseudoscience to help them understand that. But um, because the pseudoscientific beliefs can become so attached to how we see ourselves, I try and start, um, I kind of think of like a spectrum where in the middle are beliefs that don't necessarily um, have strong identity triggers, like witchcraft, right? Most people, right. Yeah, yeah, students, yeah. right? I've, I actually have had a few um, immigrant students, largely, who um, believe in witchcraft. Um, but generally speaking, my students don't. So I can start there, and then I, I can move along a spectrum. I don't start with vaccine denial, right? Because that would immediately trigger defensive reactions among students who have social identities and personal identities associated with vaccine denial or climate change denial or even something like Reiki because some students feel really strongly about that. So I start here and then I kind of slowly move over the course of the semester. I got to stop you for one second yep. though, because um, we'll come back to those spe specific pseudoscience if, you're, if that's okay. But you brought up something I wanted to mention. I mean, you these are students in your class, right? But I don't want to overlook the fact that this kind of shocking revelation that you've been wrong affects people of all ages and all professions. So uh, there's uh, even this can happen to doctors because there was the study that showed that um, heart stenting for stable engine is no better than placebo. But it's been practiced for 40 years, right? Um, if you've been doing that for 40 years, that's going to come as a big shock to you. And you're probably going to deny it mm -hmm. when the evidence and that and you're a doctor. OK, mm -hmm. you're a cardiac doctor. Um, things like that. I can only think of medical things that have been, uh, I wouldn't say disproven, but overturned. Mm -hmm. how, should, how can we say that? Um, and the same thing with Reiki, right? Which if, if anybody doesn't know, it's like energy healing just by waving hands. I'm simplifying it grossly, but it's pretty easy to simplify that way. So that's one thing. It's, it's, it's not just students. And also nursing can come out with vaccine denial. Yes. And therapeutic touch, I've heard, has been taught at nursing schools, yes. which is uh, a synonym for Reiki. So these aren't, we're not just talking about kids that come from high school and they're a sophomore in college. You can graduate from nursing school and yes. believe in therapeutic touch. Not that I'm saying anything bad about nurses specifically. You can be a doctor for 40 years and it can be mind blowing to find out, holy cow, something I've been doing is no better than placebo and it carries all the risks. Yep. Anybody is susceptible basically. What have you changed your mind about that was mind blowing, that was gut wrenching, I should say, mm. so that you, you were confronted with the evidence and you it was difficult to accept. I don't know, do you have an example? Yeah, okay, so a few things. Um, the first is that education and intelligence are not protective against believing in things that are wrong. And actually, it can make it worse 
because we get better at defending our beliefs. We get better at finding justifications for what we want to believe, basically. Um, and something else that you said there, um, a lot, so I, I wish I had the, the, the polls in front of me. Um, what I can recall is that um, a shocking number of even those with science degrees hold a variety of pseudoscientific beliefs. From anything in like the paranormal to um, like health pseudosciences. Um, as someone who has a few science degrees and gone through the process of creating a course to teach these skills, not facts, what I have learned is just how much this kind of course is needed for science majors as well. In that one can get through a lot of science education just being taught what those fields know without really understanding the history and philosophy of science. And I think those things would be helpful um, and protective against those other kinds of false beliefs. Now, as for what I oh, have changed my mind on, you know, that's a really good question. And it's not the first time I've been asked that. Um, I will admit to suffering from something called belief change blindness, um, which is uh, basically we, we all often change our minds we just don't remember that we changed our minds. Oh, okay. We rewrite our past memory to think that we already believe that, right? Because we want to see ourselves in a positive light and we don't like to think that we were wrong. We just change our mind and forget we were ever wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, like um, I used to, I don't know how personally I took it, um, I used to not believe GMOs were safe. Oh, okay. Um, wow, and, that, and you're a biologist. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know, there's tons of evidence that they're not only safe, they're nutritious and life-saving around the world where they don't have nutritional food. Now, I would like to owe part of that to the fact that that was a long time ago, and we've learned a lot since then. Well, that's okay. But I actually think there was, there was a decent consensus at the time. Um, I, I was wrong. Um, I also changed my mind. I grew up in a young earth creationist church. Oh. Um, oh, that must have been hard to kick. Actually, yeah. Um, well, I was taught a lot of beliefs about how, like, um, women's roles in, in life were very limited because, of course, we were made to serve man. Um, Young Earth, that, that must have been, a, that's a fundamental mm -hmm. belief church. That just could only be one of the beliefs that were fundamental. Uh-huh. So I did have a friend that went to a fundamentalist church when I was in school, and his father didn't want his kids going to college because that's where you learn not to believe. Uh -huh. So the fact that you even, I mean, did you leave that before you left high school? What am I saying? Yeah. No, okay. actually it was in college. So you went college. to, oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I know you went to college, but so you were able to go to college as part of the church, not as part of the church, but I mean. Ah, uh, they didn't have any limitations on us going. So to, you weren't warned from your parents, no, you can't go to college because that's where people no, become actually, sinners. Oh, okay. My mom, always taught me that I could do anything that a man could do. And so I was getting okay. these mixed messages oh, oh, from okay. like church and home. And I went to, I, I actually would, went uh, as a biology major. I was pre-vet. Um, and I was my second year as a biology major. Wait, 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 you're a young earth creationist biology major? Yes. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> I know. Well, because 
I spent my first year in biology learning about botany and zoology, and we didn't we didn't learn evolutionary theory. Now, botany and zoology make absolutely no sense without evolution, but they weren't teaching science that way. And so I could just you know learn about you know flower sex and be fine. Um, okay. It was my second year. Uh, I took World Civ one, so ancient world civilizations, and I remember the professor talking about. Um, the different civilizations, ancient civilizations, and the, the different gods that they had. And I had never really heard that before. And it was, she was describing like they would create gods that served their own unique purposes for like the, the climate they had and the various social structure and so on. And it was like, I remember sitting in my desk and I still like feel, could feel myself, whoa. And that was it. <laughs> the light bulb went on. It did. Wow. Yeah. All right, so I took you off your pseudoscientific spectrum from class. Oh. Let's get back to that. Okay. okay. Sorry, so you start with witches, um, things that um, people generally don't believe anymore, mm -hmm. but they can relate to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're on the spectrum. Yes, we're on the spectrum, and we're moving. Um, so after witches, I move on to, um, I have a section called the limits of perception and memory. Um, and it's basically about um, our personal experiences are limited in their ability to tell us about the world. Um, this is one of the hardest things that I find for people to understand. I spend a lot of time on social media these days and you get a lot of, I know, you get a lot of, well, I know it's true, I saw it, or I know it works, I tried it. And they think their personal experiences or their memory of something as a kid is just absolutely a fact. And um, we even have like Missouri, the show me state, I'll believe it when I see it. Taking that a bit further, how can anybody know about evolution? Nobody was there to see it, that kind of thing. So, um, so we talk about the limits of perception and memory. I use ghosts and UFOs. And we talk about the ways that our, our perception can fool us. And even you know, trained pilots can be fooled by these really basic optical illusions. And seeing what we expect to see. So with ghosts, for example, um, I talk about the history of ghosts. We do um, like ghosts in ancient Egypt and in ancient um, uh, Greece. And then we move forward to like um, early uh, Catholic ghosts. And, and then even today, different ghosts in different cultures. And I have a lot of students from a lot of different places. And so it's a great opportunity to, what kind of ghosts do you have in your culture maybe that we've not ever heard of? So, okay, now, why would I tell you this? Like, why would we be talking about this in, in a class like this? And, you know, it takes students a while before they realize that, well, if ghosts are, if something happens to humans when we die, one would expect that to be consistent across time and space. And in fact, what we see is and cultural, culture, right. we see cultural beliefs of the time and locations influencing what people see. And so it's this wonderful, like, uh, it's called the expectation effect, where you've been conditioned to see something, to hear something, to expect something. And so you do, you see it, you perceive it. And then it becomes proof of what you already thought was true as opposed to recognizing how much of what we perceive is influenced by our assumptions and expectations. Going back to the astrology thing and the personality test, you called it a personality test, you can't not be familiar, if that makes sense, that some companies use 
personality tests uh, for, I don't know, if, I don't know how much they, I, I have talked to people that say, oh yeah, my company gave me a personality test and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how much they really rely on them to place people in appropriate jobs or to say this person's still advanced, but that's not far from astrology from what I've read. It's not. It's not. Like um, the MBTI in particular. Myers-Briggs personality test? Myers-Briggs personality, whatever, it's Myers-Briggs, yeah, right? it's Myers-Briggs. Um, yeah, I, I've read stories, um, probably like you, of businesses actually using it to place people, to promote people, to move them in different places. But even if it's not used for those kinds of real world decisions, they are widely used. And there's not, yeah, they're basically Barnum statements. Well, I mean, if you look up the history of Myers-Briggs, it's a big, it was a big business for them. And then when they had, I think they hired someone to come on board and help them design the test. And after a couple of years, he started to say, wait a minute, this, this isn't working the way, and they fired him. So it was, uh, you know, I, I don't quote me on any of that, anybody, but you may have, I'm, I'm not too far off, I don't think. No, you're not. And um, that's another one of those cases where, I don't know about you, but I've had conversations with people who've taken the MBTI, and they very strongly think that it told them um, intimate things about their personality. Okay. They think it's accurate, but it's basically a horoscope. Yeah. So at the end of the semester, there's usually a questionnaire assessment that your teacher sends out, or mine always did, and that you fill it out. Um, do you do that? I do. Okay, do you do that for yourself, or is that part of the university requirement? Well, the university does its own thing, which okay. I find oh. very unhelpful okay. as far as what I want from the students. So they have the thing that they have to do. Um, I want to know, for my own purposes, what, what have you changed your mind on? What did you learn this semester that you'll take with you the rest, um, the rest of your life? And what do you hear? Oh, I hear absolutely wonderful things. Um, I you wish get a, you've ruined my life? <laughs> I have, actually. Well, it, it's a, I have it, mockingly it, had that. Right, it's in a lighthearted way, though, because, yeah. okay. Yeah, there's actually this comic that I show at this point, and it's a student uh, in front of their professor's desk, and it says, like, uh, the student says, um, you were the best professor I ever had. Um, you ruined life for me, or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I do have students who continue to follow me, um, and I appreciate their feedback. But it, actually, during the semester, they give me feedback, too. Um, I had, I had one particular student um, on the lecture about supplements stop me from lecturing so that he could call his mom in the middle of lecture and tell her about the supplements. Oh. It was wonderful, actually. It was really funny. Um, I had, <laughs> I know, you wouldn't think it was. Um, I've had no. students who like, oh, my girlfriend really believes in astrology. I do actually do an astrology case study as well later in the semester where they test astrology and learn about the um, experiments done on astrology. Um, and I've had a lot of like, oh, I'm going to show this to my family because they believe in this. Um, I think during the semester, as different issues come up, students give me their specific feedback. At the end of the semester, they generally tell me about how um, information literacy, in particular, um, is something that they're going to take with them because they have to do, um, they have to live online, but they also have to like write reports and do um, homework for other classes. And they don't learn that stuff, apparently, in some of their other classes. Okay, so define information literacy. Uh, so information literacy is the ability to um, find and use reliable information uh, to make decisions. It's, it's a shorthand definition. but. Um, Students aren't taught how to fact check, for example. 
they're not taught about algorithms or echo chambers or filter bubbles or the fact that when I Google search something, it might be different than your results or your social media feed looks vastly different than mine. Why would that be? Well, we've chosen different things and Facebook's algorithms feed us different things. But um, pulling that back into what they've learned about like perception and critical thinking, what they see in information impacts what they think about the world what they think is real, what they think is common. Um, and when they talk to somebody else who has a vastly different information ecosystem, they can't possibly understand, like, well, wait a minute, why do you think that? Well, you're so stupid, right? And it might just be because they have a different information ecosystem that's given them a different view of reality. All right, let me throw something back at you. I've also, I was a TA at a university during graduate school, teaching assistant, I taught classes. There's also, you also have a faculty, right? And so a university is not exempt from this, this higher um, education facility is not exempt from some pseudoscientific beliefs themselves. So I don't know, how popular are you around class, uh, around campus with the rest of the faculty? <laughs> well, I'm just saying that because I remember back, you know, I mean, especially in music school, I mean, there are a lot of things that get sold to students mm -hmm. as a way to improve their ability to perform. Um, it could be a supplement, it could be a copper bracelet, not a, a, I guess it could be a, or a, a wristband, it could be, you know, coming from the arts, there's just all kinds of crazy things. And I mean, it doesn't stop at break a leg. And then there's athletes. Oh, excellent. And, yes. Um, uh, oh, excellent. Yeah, so what, I mean, you're surrounded by um, people that have emotionally invested themselves in their beliefs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't stop with the students, that's my point. Yeah, I honestly, I have not heard that from other faculty. They may just not be telling me. Okay. <laughs> um, but as far as the students go, what I've discovered is there is an absolutely limitless amount of things that humans will believe that are absolute bunk. And it continually shocks me. And this doesn't mean anyone is stupid. No. We're all susceptible. We I just have to say susceptible. that. Okay. Thank I know you. I say it a lot of the times, but I don't want anybody to think that, okay. No, you're totally right. And I include myself in we're all susceptible. But also, like, um, it, it, um, we have our own things that we might think are true. Um, let me sidestep just for a second and tell a little story that contextualizes some of this. Um, so uh, a few years ago, my husband and I like to travel. And a few years ago, we went to Vanuatu. Uh, which is, uh, and I didn't know what Vanuatu was before I got there either, to be frank. I we it was were, a South Pacific island? Yeah, it is. Oh, um, we were in Australia and it was, we had some free time. Where do we go? There were cheap tickets to Vanuatu. Sure. So we went to Vanuatu. Wow. And it's this archipelago of a bunch of islands, really isolated in the South Pacific. Um, this place is the most linguistically diverse place on the planet. Um, it has um, a very long history of being isolated, and the individual islands are also isolated. Um, when we got there, we saw um, evidence of um, this, uh, it's called a cargo cult, um, but the John Fromm uh, cargo cult. Uh, and this is a religion that came up, like we saw give birth to this religion. Um, in that, um, in the 
World War II, the Americans were fighting the Japanese and we were island hopping across the, the Pacific to get to them. And so we would get to an island and like bring our munitions and establish a base, you know, build runways, bring our planes there, all of our stuff that people needed to survive and then move on to the next one. And we landed in Vanuatu and they'd never seen Westerners. They'd never seen planes. They'd never seen jeans or like spam. <laughs> all kinds of things they hadn't seen. And so um, when uh, this religion sprung up, um, they think it's John from America. Oh, yeah. So, um, but it's, um, they, to this day, worship American soldiers. So um, every year on, I think it's February 15th, I, I could be wrong on that date. It's in the middle of February. Um, they have John Frum Day and um, they wear jeans and they paint themselves with like USA and they carry um, what looks like guns made of like sticks and stuff. Um, they sing American patriotic songs. Um, they've built runways and like mo uh, makeshift planes out of like um, bamboo and such. Um, it's, it's a ritual that is hoping to bring John Frum back to bring the technology and the goods to the people. No, wait, do they really believe this or has it just become part of the culture like Mardi Gras here so that they do it? As, as I said, like we do, I don't know, St. Patrick's Day. Nobody yeah. really, I hope nobody really believes. But. Well, but we do believe, uh, maybe not St. Patrick's Day, but we do believe in St. Patrick, or people do. Okay. People do believe in the premise behind those things. Okay. So, I mean, it's probably a spectrum again, um, but the, it is definitely um, something that's believed and worshipped. So the John Frum thing, let me just back up a little bit. So I think I remember this. The Americans showed up. The first thing they did was build a runway. Mm -hmm. And then planes came and they drop off the supplies so the soldiers can live. Yep. And the uh, indigenous population sees this and they start to, well, if we build runways and we march and we have things and we, then God will come and drop stuff up. So they made this, um, they connected the dots. Yes. I actually have, um, I, I wrote a story about this on my website. Um, because oh good, I, did I screw up too much then? No, okay. because I actually, I use it for, oh, concurrently alongside the witches. But here's the thing, um, like to me, that was really out there, right? Like okay. I thought, how in the world can people believe that? But it, almost immediately alongside with that belief came, what do I believe that they think is equally as ridiculous? In that, our culture influences what we believe. And if we hear it enough, it becomes just, uh, it, it's called the reiteration effect. The more we hear something, the more um, we assume the ease of processing means it's true. So it just kind of, it doesn't even have to be something that's explicitly taught. A lot of cultural norms come this way, where we just, we get enough of it that um, we just, we don't even question it, it's just true. Well, that's how we gain a lot of knowledge, right? Yes. So we, it's based on a lot, even as a scientist, a lot of what you learn is based on assumptions. You're not going to go back and repeat everything, so. Well, there is an important assumption with science, which is that how we learned that was from a method that's similar to what we're using. And it's cumulative, because if foundational knowledge is wrong, oh, right. we will learn. Um, but these kind of beliefs, I, I guess, um, circling back to like these kinds of beliefs that people have and we're all prone to these beliefs. I mean, yeah, we are. Part of it's just the cultural stew that we 
are in and they seep up into our brains and we don't question them, they're just true. And so um, the students, I have a really lovely diversity of students. They bring things to class that I never would have even considered. Um, what I've learned then is, back to what we're talking about, um, there is an infinite number of things that we will believe in, and it's impossible to get to all of them. And even if I tried to cover all of them, a new one will pop up. So what I'm trying to do is teach students the skills and the patterns to be able to recognize, well, this is something I haven't really questioned. Should I question it? How do I question it? How confident am I in this? How would I test this? Where did it come from? Like all of those questions so that for them, they may be in like in athletics. They've got some sort of thing that they do that I've never heard of. Hopefully the skills that I've taught them are um, usable enough for them, for them to be able to question it themselves. In a perfect world, that's my goal. That's a great place to be, actually, because that was one of my questions is, okay, so critical thinking skills, how do we evaluate information, science literacy, information literacy? Let me just push back a little bit. You can take, you, you can go through all of these steps, but at some level, we're still sort of emotional animals, right? So a lot of, I mean, you can see where I'm going here? Yeah. We still make decisions based on emotion, so I can go down the cereal aisle Maybe that's been used too much, but there's so, basically everything's the same. You know, how do I make a decision? So I make it on emotion, which, which label looks good to me. All right. So we make emotional decisions, even though we think we're making critical thinking decisions. Maybe not you. <laughs> <laughs> no, me and Not too. all yes. of us, but many of us. It comes down to an emotional, uh, I have to take that leap. So what do you say to that? Yeah, um, actually, in a, emotions get a bad rap, I think. Um, there's a, a famous study, I, I'm forgetting the man's name. There was a, a man who had a, like a brain lesion. And so to remove it, they had to sever the part of the brain that went from the emotional part to the, the prefrontal cortex, which is where we think critically. And he was absolutely incapable of making decisions. He couldn't make any decision. He couldn't get anything done. What that and other similar things have taught us is that there is an emotional component to nearly all of our reasoning. Um, that's an important thing for a lot of people to learn because you get a lot of this, um, again, I spend way too much time online, but you know, facts don't care about your feelings, right? But feelings also don't care about facts. And so the people who tend to think of themselves as reasoning purely critically and not using emotion, I think are in denial. Um, well, let me give you an example. I mean, when the COVID vaccines came out, I'm not a scientist, but I know enough through the, what I do to trust what's happening. And it seemed like a, in, a, in a year, less than a year, this was developed where other vaccines take years to go on, right? So when I was in line at the back, and that's the other surreal thing, you're in line at like the, you know, someplace where they usually have a basketball game for thousands of people and you're in line, queued up to get, it just was a surreal thing. I don't know where you got vaccinated, but for me, I went to one of those mass centers. It was just like something 50 years from now, these are gonna be great history pictures of people lined up for the COVID vaccine. Anyway, it was, I had to, it was an emotional decision for me. Yeah. I trusted the information, but I was still nervous 
And I don't know if it was just because it w we were in a pandemic and there was just a lot of emotion going on, but I, I did it, of course, and I trusted the science. I know that's not a great term to use. It was an emotional decision for me that kicked me into it. Does that make any sense? It does. Okay. Yeah, um, so part of the important Part of an important part of reasoning is recognizing the role of emotion. So understanding um, if your emotions are driving your reasoning, and if so, are you in control of that reasoning? Like your emotions may be driving it, but hopefully it's still leading it to a place that uses critical thinking. Okay, so it worked out for me. <laughs> yes, as opposed to using emotions to find justifications to support something that you want or don't want to believe, but that's not true, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So um, even understanding the role, that there is a role of emotion in reasoning and um, being aware of it. So it's, it's a metacognitive process of understanding, are my emotions at play? If so, what are they leading me towards? Is, is this something that I'm motivated to do? What are my motives here? Um, so just being aware of your, your thought processes, even if they're emotional, um, knowing that is an important step. Um, you said something there that's really important though, and it's, it's the trust component. And um, I know there's a lot of people who say that we're in a post-truth world, and I actually, I don't agree with that. I think most people think that they believe in things that are true, and they care if what they believe is true. They might be wrong, but they still care if what they believe is true. I think the bigger issue is post-trust and that we have fallen um, through a variety of, some of them are, are disinformation campaigns purposely designed to um, get us to not trust each other or reliable sources of information. But not trusting the right source can certainly lead you astray. So as soon as like masks or the vaccine became political, then people fell in line with their political tribe, which is who they trusted. Their identity. You mentioned identity earlier. Their identity. Way earlier. Okay. They trust people in their social groups, right? Because that's their identity. Those are the shared identities. And so the problem with that is not all of them use the same reliable sources of information gathering or even care about the same reliable sources of information gathering, if I'm being, you know, a little and bit. And it's not only within their group. I mean, people trust the celebrities they like. They trust their sports heroes. Yes. Um, when was the last time anybody ever knew what Anthony, who Anthony Fauci is or what he does, right? He was like a new person, even though he's been there for 50 whatever years. Yeah. But, you know. But now you love him or hate him. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or I don't trust anything the government says where I don't trust anything in the mainstream media, right? That kind of um, nihilism, right? Cynicism that leads to basically nihilism. The, some of that is, is, um, was purposefully driven, but the people involved are victims nonetheless. And what happens then is that they don't trust the right sources of information and they get misled sometimes to their own peril. I mean, people have died of COVID not even believing COVID was real. Um, and so, with the part of critical thinking, again, that's an important thing to note, is where did I get this information from? And am I believing it because I trust the source in some way? And does that source deserve my trust? Meaning, do I trust them just because they're a shared identity? 
because I don't want to look bad by being wrong? Or was it actually through a process of collectively evaluating and vetting information like science, for example? That's great because that statement wraps up critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. Who do I trust and how do I figure that out? All right. I'm going to tease something here because now we're getting into, well, who I trust is different than you, who you trust, so we're going to argue about that, right? You'll be back for Why Facts Don't Change Minds, which is perfect because with the science literacy, the information literacy, and the critical thinking, who do we trust? You and I may trust different people, so we're going to have different facts. Why Facts Don't Change Minds. I look forward to that conversation. I do too. Melanie Teresa King, you have been my guest here on 502 Conversations. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Is there anything else you wanted to say? I think we like danced around, not danced around, we went in depth around a lot of different things. So I hope that we've covered. Oh, there is one thing I want to ask you. How's the reception around the country for critical thinking? Because I know this is popping up. You're doing it at Massasoit. I know it's part of the curriculum at the, is it California? I don't know what yep, they call it. US. The California state system. Okay, right. It's part of their curriculum. Yep. Okay. I know someone in Canada that does it, uh, critical thinking at uh, McEwen. So is West Coast, they, it's part of their curriculum for the state. East Coast, not quite yet, right? Where is it coming? I mean, how, where is it going? I wish I knew. There, There's a group of us that are trying to, um, um, in, including the, the, the folks from California, um, Ray Hyman and... Um, uh, Ray Hall and... Oh, sorry, yes. Kathleen Dyer. Yes, and Katie Dyer. Katie Dyer. Um, with, like, Natalia Pasternak. Okay. Um, uh, leading the charge. And so we're trying to get together, um, like, a common syllabus about um, what critical thinking might look like in the classroom to provide to other educators. Um, I hear good and bad things. Um, I hear people trying to do it and getting a lot of pushback from um, fellow uh, faculty or from admin. Oh. Um, and I, I hear great things with people doing really inventive things in their classroom. Um, I wish it was more than it was. One thing that I will say that um, my, so I, the website that I created, Thinking is Power, um, I put my curriculum on it. A lot of my writing, I started for my students thinking that they needed because there wasn't a textbook. Um, and so I wrote for them and then um, started putting my, some of my curriculum out as well for other educators. And um, I can see a lot of um, high schools and universities actually around the world using it, which says hopefully there are more places using this kind of critical thinking in the classrooms. And hopefully you'll be put out of business because I'd like to see this in um, middle school so that when they get to you, it's done. <laughs> oh, middle school would be the perfect place to put it, actually. Oh. By the time they get to me, it's honestly a little bit too late. Um, middle school, um, I'm working more and more with middle school educators. I feel like the National Science Teaching Association, um, because they have uh, a bit more freedom in the curriculum, at least in the United States. And um, yeah, a lot of the teachers are really interested in this kind of thing. So if we can get it in middle school, then it will help them with their other courses and their learning as they uh, progress through and they'll get less stuck in their beliefs, hopefully. Okay, great. Melanie Teresa King, once again, you have been my guest around 502 Conversations, thinkingispower.com, um, CIRCE, which uh, community, uh, sorry, what is it again? Uh, just do Mental Immunity Project. Mental Immunity Project, all right, so you have your hands in a lot of projects. Congratulations and best of luck. Thank you. <laughs> we need, it's not luck, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs>
All right. Let's hope for good work. Thank you. Thank you.